Guys, I often say things that I wish I had not said. Anybody else have this problem? Now, I've gotten a little bit better at this as I've gotten older, but trust me, still not perfect. I've talked about this inclination before. For me, I used to live out a two-part ritual. Part one, open mouth. Part two, insert foot. One time, there was this one time back when I worked in the banking and finance world, I was part of the management training class. There was 20-some of us at First Fidelity Bank, at that time the, the biggest bank in the state. And they had hired us to, well, to train us up to be future leaders in the bank. Well, if you've been part of that world, you know what happens a lot over a few years, about half of the class or more. They decide that, you know, the pastures are greener and more lucrative over at other banks, and so they, they leave the program. Now, one of those guys that left was a friend of mine named Pete, and Pete had two distinguishing characteristics. One was that Pete was a very big guy. I think he played football for Villanova. Had to be a good 75 to 80 pounds bigger than I was, my little skinny rear end. The second was that Pete, at the ripe old age of 22 or so, was already losing his hair. In fact, by the time Pete left the bank, his hair was thinner than I was. And so, I don't know, a couple of years went by, and unbeknownst to me, Pete came back and was rehired by the bank. Now, after not seeing him for a couple of years, I got wind that he was back at the bank, but I hadn't seen him yet. The first time I actually ran into him was in the giant corporate headquarters, all marble, super echoey main lobby. He was at one end and I was at the other. And, and so when I saw him from a distance, I realized that he looked significantly different than the last time I saw him, and I, I, I suddenly realized it had something to do with a new hairstyle. That was the reason he looked different. And so, right there in the marble lobby, I yelled across all of it to Pete, my voice booming off the ornate walls. Hey, Pete! And then wanting to compliment his new look, I followed it up with, new hair! At that, Pete kind of put his head down and turned away. And it was at just that moment I realized he didn't have a new hairstyle. Pete actually had new hair, a full scalp full of plugs. It's not easy being me. I misspeak often. I'm a human being. It's to be expected. This summer morning in week two of our new series, Outcast, I want to take a look at something Jesus shockingly said. Actually, he said it about an outcast. Something that pundits and scholars alike have historically argued about with some even reconciling it as Jesus misspeaking. Jesus, in a sense, putting his sandal in his mouth, if you will, or, or some have, have declared it even worse. It is confusing, no doubt, but I'm going to tell you this. When we see this correctly, it is a powerful truth. Well, about you and I and about outcasts and, and our ability to pass what I will call the outcast test. Let me show you what I mean. If you were with us last week, last week uh, we began this series, when we began the series, I introduced you to this super powerful essay by C.S. Lewis called The Inner Ring. The Inner Ring was the term that Lewis used to describe the ever-shrinking circles of dominance and influence that each of us, usually beginning sometime around middle school or so, that we're always trying to get ourselves into. You know, the more popular group, the more powerful group, the more influential group. Lewis writes, quote, I believe that in all men's lives, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. 
And he concludes, I believe even more powerfully, of all passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet very bad do very bad things. You see, it's our shared pursuit of the inner ring which has a natural outflow. Outcasts. Those then that are not invited in. Those, in fact, kept out, walled out. Now, we have them today in every social circle. School, work, neighborhoods, unfortunately, even churches. We have them today, and, and Jesus had them in his day. But as you spend time studying Jesus' three-plus-year ministry on earth, what you discover is that this pursuit of the inner ring versus the pursuit of the outcasts is a major theme for him. One that he had spent lots and lots and lots of time trying to teach his disciples about. Now, you might remember last week, we looked at three stories Jesus told about God's heart for those far from him, the outcasts of Jesus' day. But that is just one of the times that Jesus tried to impart this lesson to his followers. He was constantly doing it, welcoming sinners and tax collectors, prostitutes, even going to their homes and eating with them. It was almost as if his mission was to the outcast. Now, we're going to look at an outcast encounter that both Matthew and Mark record. But before, before I, I, I share it with you, before it occurs, for the sake of context, you have to know that Mark, for example, and Matthew too, they've already recorded that Jesus has been healing both Jews, which in Israel were the in crowd, and Gentiles, the outcasts. In fact, by way of background, Jesus had yet to refuse to heal anyone, Jew or Gentile, that had asked him. Now, the encounter that we're about to examine, it takes place outside of Jerusalem, in Gentile territory, where Jesus seemed to keep taking his disciples in order to make sure they understood the mission, that they understood outcasts. In fact, this passage, it's actually bracketed by two feedings of thousands. For example, if you look back in Mark chapter 6, you have the feeding of the 5,000. And if you look ahead in Mark 8, you have the feeding of the 4,000. One in a Jewish territory, one in a Gentile territory. And speaking of Mark, Mark's gospel is so clearly directed at Gentile audiences. He, he writes in Greek and he explains Semitic phrases to the reader. Mark was intending his Gentile audience to read and understand this story. What he did not want to do was try to offend them by it which is what makes what's about to happen so seemingly out of place and so often misunderstood. Now, here's what both Mark and Matthew record. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. And he entered a house, and he didn't want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Okay, so enter the story. Now, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 5, Jews, and if you know the story, he tells the disciples to get into the boat, and they cross over to the other side of the lake. He's no longer in, in Jewish territory. He's in Gentile territory, outcast territory. 
Now, in this instance, it's, it's actually worse than that because for the disciples, this is enemy territory. You see, Tyre and Sidon were two Phoenician city, cities that were located on the Mediterranean coast, and the Jews despised the people who lived there. In fact, the first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote that, quote, the people of Tyre are our bitterest enemy. Jesus said once that on the day of judgment, even in Tyre and Sidon, they'll be better off than the cities that saw his miracles but didn't respond. They were the Sodom and Gomorrah of the day. He, he was saying even the most wicked people you think you know, even those you regard at the bottom of the barrel, would have repented if they had seen the miracles you've seen. That's who lived in Tyre and Sidon, the bottom of the barrel, the worst of the worst. And so this woman, well, she would be regarded by the disciples as an outcast. She was a member of the most spiritually degraded people they knew. Her people were their enemies. Remember last week I told you that there were sinners and then there were tax collectors? Because tax collectors, well, they were the low of the low. Sinners awoke every morning and said, well, at least I'm not a tax collector. Well, tax collectors woke up every morning and said, at least I'm not from Tyre. Everybody's always looking and comparing, trying to be closer to that inner ring. Matthew, he picks up the story, and, and he records what happens. He writes that this woman came to him, came to Jesus, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now, this story might sound a bit familiar if you've been with us over the last couple weeks. We just looked at the incredible compassion Jesus had on a synagogue leader named Jairus' little daughter a few weeks ago. So a very familiar story, but this time it's not a Jewish leader in the temple, but a woman from Canaan. Now, given all that has led up to this encounter, what would you expect Jesus' reaction to her cries and her pleas to be? Compassion, mercy, understanding? Well, you might, but that's not what happened. See, this is, this is why I love the Bible. It's just never what you think it's going to be. It's often not even what you want it to be. Here's what Matthew records. He says that Jesus did not answer a word. What did, what did Jesus do as this poor woman wept over her daughter? Well, he didn't do anything. What did Jesus say to her as tears streamed down her face? Jesus said nothing. Now, it's interesting here you have this woman, right? And she, she comes and she humbles herself in coming to Jesus. She acknowledges him as, quote, Lord. Then she even calls him son of David, so she knows something of Judaism. She's deeply respectful. Her desperation causes her to cross boundaries of ethnicity and gender that were plainly not crossed in her day. And her reward for all of this, well, seemingly, it's silence, it's indifference, it's it's rejection. And Matthew, he, he records it this way for two reasons. One, well, because this is exactly what happened. And two, because in hindsight, he knows what's about to happen. See, he, he wants us to feel Jesus' seemingly cold shoulder for the moment. Now, you and I, right, we're surprised by this. I mean, who took our Jesus and what have you done with him? You know who was not surprised by Jesus' indifference to her pleas? Apparently all 12 of his disciples. You see, 
They believed that rabbis don't talk to women. Women in first century Jerusalem are one level of outcasts, especially Syrophoenician women. So Jesus' rejection in their minds, it's not only warranted, it's required. Which is why Matthew writes this. So, so because of all these reasons, so his disciples came to him and urged Jesus, send her away for she keeps crying out after us couple of thoughts here and I love this so much because it's the pursuit of the inner ring again right disciples say she keeps crying out to us after us you know I don't know I've read it a few times not once did I see her use the name of Peter or James or John she's not after us some of you know there's a guy that goes to our church, a, a comedian named Jim Brewer. And, and Jim, Jim's a celebrity, and, and a year or two ago, uh, Jim and I were going to a Mets game, and, and I met a friend at the game, and, uh, and he said, oh, could we get a picture with Jim? And so we had somebody take a picture of me and my son and Jim and my friend. And I don't know, 15, 20 minutes went by, and I got a alert from Facebook that my friend had changed his profile picture. So I pulled it up, and you know what he had done? He had changed his profile picture to be him and Jim Brewer and had cut out my son and I. I could imagine his status, just me and my friend Jimmy hanging out at the game. You see, we love the inner ring, right? And here are the disciples, Jesus, we, you know, all of those of us in the inner ring, we don't have time for her. Send her away, Jesus. You and I, Jesus, we're busy. Now, second observation. Someone from outside the ring approaches Jesus and the disciples' reaction is what? Send her away. Does this sound familiar to anybody? You remember when people were bringing little children to Jesus? And again, children in the first century world, relative outcasts, so much so that again, both Matthew and Mark record that these same disciples rebuked them for bringing children. Can't you just hear them? We, uh, I mean, Jesus has no time for kids. You see, when you feel like you're in the inner ring, you'll do a lot to keep others out of that same ring. So much for women and children first. John Ortberg, in his great book, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, he comments on our inclination towards building walls and walling ourselves in and others out. He begins by quoting Robert Frost's poem, The Mending Wall, where he questions the old adage about fences making good neighbors. Quote, before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. He says, the only man-made object, this is so interesting, isn't it? The only man-made object visible from the moon is a wall, the Great Wall of China. Since Cain and Abel, the human race has been building walls. It, it happens in the backseat of crowded cars between quarreling siblings. You better not cross this line. And walls go up between husbands and wives, between co-workers, between denominations and cultures, right? Races and countries. There was a wall between a desperate Gentile woman and 12 self-important disciples. The Apostle Paul would write about it, calling this particular wall the dividing wall of hostility. It's been around as long as anybody could remember. And everybody figured it would last forever. Ortberg actually recounts a story 
uh, about one of his friends. He wrote uh, that I was talking to an old friend recently about what regrets we had in life. The first one that came to his mind was striking to me. When we were in high school, he had been asked to the turnaround, the traditional girl asked the boys dance, by a girl who was not in the inner ring or the next couple of rings close to it. She was bright, gifted, and artistic, but for some unknown reason, she was positioned on the outer fringes of high school social casts. She was different somehow. And my friend said, no, as gently as he could, but, but firmly. The truth was, he told me, he was kind of afraid of what people might think. It might make him look as if he was further away from the inner ring than he wanted to be. I could have gone and made it a great night, my friend said. I, I should have just ignored the whole stupid system of who's in and who's out instead of letting out of any power over my life. If I could do high school all over again, I would have gone to that dance. Now, if you get back to the story, if you thought Jesus' silence was strange or, or cruel or out of character, what comes next? What comes next is downright maddening and so often misunderstood. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, which is really hard to reconcile given everything that we know that he's done so far, right? This is the same Jesus who said that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever, the whole world, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the same Jesus who winds up crucified because of his radical inclusion. Why at this moment why this sudden exclusion? Well, I think part of the answer is found in understanding who Jesus spoke this line to because his answer was not to the woman. To the woman's cry, remember, he just remained silent. And why? Well, according to renowned theologian Kenneth Bailey in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, it was because Jesus, as a great teacher, was actually testing two people here the woman in her faith, and the disciples and their understanding. Jesus' answer was not to the woman. His answer was to the disciples. His silence was the test to see what they would say or do. They fail that one. And then Jesus looks at them and he says to them, in a sense, what they're thinking. In the face of this woman's cries, he looks at his disciples and he goes, yeah, that's right. We should exclude her because I'm here just for you. Isn't that right? Now, he's lectured his disciples before on this. He did so when they shooed the children away. But now he's seeing, he's trying to understand how much they've learned. And it seems like not much. And so my guess, my guess is Jesus waits again. First he waited and, and nothing came from his silence. And now he, he kind of says what they think about his mission and he waits again to see if his shocking words might jar them to their senses. Maybe remind them about how he had treated so many like this woman before, but it doesn't. My guess is that they just nod their head in agreement. Well, now the woman has likely overheard all this and her hopelessness is growing within her. She, she knows that Jesus is the one and only hope she has for her daughter and likely upon hearing what he just told the disciples, the woman came and now knelt before him. Lord, 
Help me, she said. The mother more desperate, the tears more pronounced, yet the disciples still so seemingly unmoved. And so then Jesus speaks again. And this time he ratchets, ratchets up the rhetoric to uncomfortable levels. He'd been speaking to the disciples, remember, and we're not told that he turns around to the woman. So picture Jesus saying this next line, still looking at his disciples, still watching their faces, still testing them. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. I mean, the meaning, it seems pretty clear, right? It was what he said in his previous line, but this time on steroids. The Jewish people are God's chosen people, his sons and daughter. This woman, this Canaanite, this Syrophoenician is a dog. And this very hard line has been so misunderstood over the years. In my research this week, I actually came across a mainline denominational minister who told his congregation while trying to explain this very difficult line, quote, Jesus had a certain limited perspective of his calling and his ministry, and he went on, then as human beings, Jesus then as a human being, shows how very easy it is to say things that are hurtful and unnecessary. Even the best person in the world can say hurtful and harsh things. His lesson to his congregation was, that does not give us permission to be condescending and hurtful, and he concluded, even Jesus as fully human can make racist and condescending comments. Church, that is not what is happening here. And this is why you do not take parts of the Scripture and read them independent of the context in which they appear. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying and what he was doing. Jesus was forcing his disciples then and now Every one of us who sees ourselves as insiders looking down on outsiders. Every one of us who pursues the inner ring while building walls of exclusion behind us as we go. Jesus was forcing them then and us now to face our own thoughts and prejudices. Jesus was not the problem. He was forcing them. He's forcing us to face down our tendency to outcast people. Ortberg put it this way. In effect, Jesus says to them, you want me to get rid of this woman? Limit my ministry to Israel? Okay, I'll do what you ask. But before I do, take a moment to watch her. Listen to her daughter's screams. Then Jesus gives voice to their theology. See, it's one thing to have contempt for somebody behind their back. It's another thing to hear the ugliness of our thoughts and feelings expressed out loud to a real human being. The test is, will any of them now speak up for this woman? Will one of them love her? And the answer was, no, not one, not yet. Not today. That was the end of that test for the disciples. There were other tests that would come in future days, and they would do better. But they were still learning. But not today. They still did not get it. Today, 
they still want to exclude outcasts. And I, I can't help but wonder on this summer Sunday, if today Jesus' modern day disciples, if we still do not get it fully either. You see, this was Jesus' test, his outcast test for his disciples. Bailey points out that there are actually two tests going on here. The first for the disciples related to their understanding of outcasts, and that was a test they failed. The second test was for the woman and her faith. We'll pick that one up next week where you'll see that she passes the test, that, that, that her faith is great faith despite the disciples' theology, and that faith winds up healing her daughter. She gets it. They don't. Do we, of all passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet very bad do very bad things. This, well, this was Peter and James and John. They were not very bad men. They walked with Jesus and they missed it. This pull to exclude and not include. This pull towards the inner ring and the desire to wall off those behind. It's, it's not new, it's ancient. And it's alive and well. It's alive and well at home and at work and at church. But maybe today, nowhere more powerfully than at school. If it's hard for us to overcome, imagine what the inner ring is doing to our kids. In fact, you don't really have to imagine. We now know suicide is the leading cause of death amongst 13-year-olds in our country. The leading cause of death. I was sharing with my wife, Joan, my heart on this topic of outcasts and Jesus' passion to draw those that were far close. And we were both recounting how hard those middle school and high school years were for our four kids. And it was then that she showed me this article our local paper had just run. It it was an open letter written by a mom named Erin Popolo to the school board of her daughter's high school. I'm going to read it to you. It began, Dear members of the Board of Education and District Administrators, Like thousands of other American teenagers this month, my daughter met the qualifications and was conferred a high school diploma last week. Her family was in attendance to celebrate the achievement, the bridge between childhood and the first steps into adulthood. But Emily was not there. I carried my daughter's ashes with me when I walked across the stage to collect her diploma, one of the final acts I will ever have the privilege to do on her behalf. There are no words to describe this ordinary moment made extraordinary. In fact, there were no words spoken about Emily at this graduation ceremony at all. My daughter, Emily Marillo, was a special education student. She was not a conventional beauty. She was quirky and and perfect with unruly curls that she would sometimes color outrageously. She wasn't a star athlete or captain of the cheerleading team. She would not have been heading off to the Ivy League in the fall. But Emily was here and she was kind, with a beautiful spirit and, and an artist's soul, a, a champion of the misunderstood and the maligned. Emily was fiercely fair, a, a true and loyal friend. Emily was here, but Emily was invisible. 
in a commencement speech given by our high school principal honoring what the class of 2021 lost in the past 18 months. He mentioned the prom and a senior dinner cruise, normalcy, but not the loss of a classmate. In a time when the entire audience was mourning things missed, there was no recognition of the ultimate loss. There was no moment of silence. There was no mention of Emily except when her name was called for her diploma and the Board of Ed president pres presented it to me with a perfunctory handshake and congratulations, Emily. She wrote, I am not Emily, but Emily was here and she was beloved and important and human. But like to many of our children who feel differently, who are different, Emily was bullied. She suffered and was marginalized. Even in death, she couldn't escape her tormentors who harassed her memory in the most despicable and deplorable of ways, even during her funeral. I pray the humility to forgive the children who sought to sully who she was, but struggle finding the grace to excuse the grown-ups who simply didn't remember her at all. I wholeheartedly believe that had Emily been the star football player when she died during her senior year, it would have been acknowledged at graduation by the administration and certainly by the principal who has yet to call or send a note of, of condolence. Even though Emily was a student under his care for the entire three and a half years at high school. She goes on, she said, I lost my daughter. Our school erased her memory and maybe even worse, they missed a teachable moment. Emily died by suicide on the coldest night of the year, certain that she was forgotten and alone, and you proved her right. Emily Michaela Marilla was my daughter, and she was here. Church, do you see how serious this topic is? See, Emily, Emily was the one Jesus would have left the 99 for Emily was the lost coin somebody should have been searching for. Emily was the daughter her heavenly father w wanted seen and found and celebrated. This is the job of followers of Jesus. We are to be an outreach army, but we often fail the outcast test. As my heart broke over this story and and as I thought of the role that the Church of Jesus Christ could play in all of this, in helping people to stop with the outcasting, this week I, I reached out to Diane Grossman. Some of you know Diane's story, her 12-year-old little girl, Mallory Grossman, 12 years old. She took her own life four years ago last month. And why? Bullying, the pull of the inner ring, the pain of the outcast, well, after reading Emily's story, I wanted to hear about Mallory. What I heard from her mom was so profoundly impactful for me. It, it, just, it just brought forth the truth of everything Jesus was teaching and, and, and made it modern and contemporary and brought it to life. Can I give you one example? Diane, she started a nonprofit called Mallory's Army. This army is an ally of ours in the war against exclusion. Mallory's Army exists to unite parents and teachers and the community against this kind of bullying. As part of their training in schools, do you know that they do exactly what Jesus did with the disciples and the Syrophoenician woman? 
You remember Jesus looked at them, and then in the presence of this weeping mother, he said aloud the thoughts of their mind. And he did it in order to shake them, to rattle them, to get them to see their hearts and the hurt that it was causing. You know, Mallory's army does the same thing. Cyberbullying is one of the, the greatest marginalization tools in the trade. Kids will text and post, just like we often think things that we would never speak aloud. Kids will text and post those things, and they would never, ever voice them in the presence of someone that it might hurt. Well, in their presentations in schools, Mallory's army, they bring some kids up to the front, and they ask the kids to read aloud texts and posts that have been sent to and said about other kids with the same thought I believe Jesus had. Maybe, maybe if they hear it, maybe if their heart hears it, maybe if their eyes see it, they would wake up and be different. Well, church family, if this series is going to go somewhere, if we are going to be an outreach army, I decided it was time for a wartime summit. So in two weeks, two weeks from this Sunday, I've asked Diane Grossman to come and be with us here at Menham Hills. I want her to share Mallory's story. I want, to, I want her to help us understand the pain of the outcast and to see what we could do together to be part of the solution. This will be a very, very special Sunday, both in person and online. She'll be here during both services. After the service, she'll be here to answer questions. And, and I want to encourage you. I know it's summer, but if you're in town, I want to plead with you to prioritize your attendance two weeks from today. It matters this issue is too big to ignore. We shouldn't. We can't. You see, this is where our theology moves off the page and into action. It's one thing to know the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. It's another to go and do likewise because this will be about that. And in the meantime, while you're thinking about what friends and neighbors and family you might invite to this event, Parents and grandparents, your friends with kids and grandchildren, they need to be here. Heck, your kids need to be here. But in the meantime, this summer, would you please look for the outcast? Search for him or her hard. They're everywhere. And ask yourself if you could pass Jesus' outcast test. For if you cannot say out loud about someone what it is you're thinking about someone, then you need to change the way you think. I'm going to close with this quote from Everybody's Normal. Inclusion Army, let this be your marching orders until next Sunday. The desire to make it into the inner ring is by its nature insatiable. You will never succeed. However, when it comes to the choice to include people, you can hardly fail. They may refuse you, of course, but the mere effort will expand your heart and bring joy to God. Now go and do.